had a special uh, privilege this week. Uh, Sal and I got to go, a couple of people actually uh, from church, uh, got to go and watch Casting Crowns uh, in concert um, this last week. And there was a, a, a moment in the concert that was particularly special for me. Um, he, uh, Mark, the, the lead singer, he, he actually was sharing his experience of his vocal cord being paralyzed and him not being able to sing and having to cancel a concert. And he was uh, spent a whole month, over a month, um, having to be quiet. And so he was writing out his uh, notes to people in his conversations and staff meetings and at home. On a, on a, they gave him a whiteboard, and I didn't, I had never thought about this, but if you try and write with a whiteboard and you're left-handed, I guess you like wipe it off as you go if you're not careful because of how. Anyway, he was sharing with us the the struggles with um, just the situation he found in his life, and he ended up in the basement most of that time in the evenings drawing um, because he couldn't do anything else, and so. Uh, one of the one of the the major struggles he had was God. I, I'm a singer. That's why that's that's what I do. And um, he came to the realization that he's not a singer. Uh, he's a disciple of Jesus who happens to sing. And as he was sharing that testimony, as he was sharing his the condition of his heart, recognizing he he even shared with us that he took uh, six years to complete the four year Bible school. Um, because he had struggled and he was so inadequate in those settings um, that the praise of his heart, the praise and testimony of his life was the sufficiency of God, sufficiency of God, and what God was doing in his heart, not his ability, not his skill set, not his anything. And it was just encouraging for me to watch somebody that's on stage that people worship these musicians and, and, and him to stand up there and say, you guys, I'm the biggest dork that's ever been on stage. I have no business being up here. I'm not qualified to be up here. I'm not skilled or gifted like people that stand next to me. And yet I'm just here to serve the Lord. I was deeply encouraged by that. Um, and it was a great privilege, uh, to, to get to do that. And I just thought I would share that with you. Um, I have no idea if it's really going to be relevant today or not. It, it may be. Um, God seems to work that way in my life as we go through the text. Um, I want to share with you what I think we're going to see today. Um, the, the apostles are being sent out today in our text, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. You can start turning there in your own Bibles if you'd like. But as I was trying to think through what this is, what this looks like in, in wrestling with this text uh, this week, this summary, if you will, kind of came to mind, and so I, I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it, and I'm going to read it to you. Uh, the apostles sent out with authority and with one another, not ready, but dependent on God and others, as a witness to those that believed and a testimony against those that rejected, with the reward of obedience being great. Um, that was kind of the summary. That was what, as I was wrestling through the text, trying to lay out how it would flow, um, uh, that's what I believe we're going to see today. Um, and so would you follow along with me in Mark chapter 6 as we begin today and um, look at the passage. So Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. 
he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. And part of the process, as I was as I was looking at this, um, I was thinking to myself, "Man, those the disciples or the apostles are being sent out, right? What was their training regiment up to this point? Did they have a good Bible school education? Not." Not, not as we would probably call it. What was their training? I just, I was thinking through this. And so I think part of it, Mark kind of shared a little bit of that. So let's just recap for a second. Uh, we see that Jesus is calming a storm in chapter four, Mark four thirty-five through 41. He heals a demon possessed man in Mark five, one through 20. Heals the suffering woman on the way to heal Jairus' daughter and then re- brings her back from death. Actually raises her from the dead in, in Mark 5, 21 through 43. And then Jesus takes them to his hometown and he's rejected there and turned away uh, by the people in chapter 6, 1 through 6. Training complete, right? Apparently. I mean, Jesus is the one sending them out, Right? Now, I, I got to tell you, I don't know if you guys have ever felt this way, but don't you guys feel a little inadequate at times to do the tasks that you've been given? I do. Sure. I, I think the disciples probably at some level had to be a little bit like, what? No money? Uh, how is this going to work, Lord? Um, it's amazing to me that in this setting that, that Jesus... Well, he just he does this. He sends them out. He prepares them, and he sends them out with with what they needed at this point. Um, one of the the things that I think we underestimate is how God is preparing us uh, in our life experiences, the things that we're going through, the the trials and the the good things and the bad things, and all of that stuff that leads us um, to that decision. I, I'll tell on Chris, my son, just a little bit. He, um, you know, in this decision to go to Bible school, right? He was uh, doing a, doing what most of us would do, and he was looking at his budget, and he's going, Dad, I, I don't have enough. I think I, should, I think I should just postpone it, and I think I should plan to go next year. And financially, we would all agree, well, yeah, you're probably right. That's probably a good idea. And um, I was in, in interacting with him. I thought, you know what, though? Man, you, we got to pray about this because that would be really bad to, to not talk to the Lord about what he wants to do. And so I said, have you talked to the Lord about it? And we walked through a Bible passage in the Old Testament and, and did the whole, you know, looked at that and said, how did God provide? What did they do? Well, they sought the Lord. And so he began that process. Well, last week he looked at me and goes, no more money's come in. And uh, I'm just not sure what to do. And I asked him, I said, so what, what did the, what's the Lord told you? And he looked at me with that look on his face, like many of us probably have, when we've gone and asked the Lord to give us direction and we haven't heard anything yet, Right? I said, it's okay to say, I don't know. Because there are times where we aren't sure. We're still waiting on the Lord to show up. And so this week was a great joy for me to watch God turn 
the light on for him as things happened that he didn't expect to happen. It didn't happen how he thought it was going to happen that the money showed up that he needed for this next, for the, for the first quarter. And God surprised him. And it was fun for me to watch the light come on. Now, we don't always appreciate that process, do we? When Jesus sends out his disciples, I think the one of the one of the unique things about this that I feel like as a church and sometimes even myself I forget is that he sent them out two by two. He sent them out with someone else. And I don't know how many of you guys are like me and at times get fiercely independent and want to hide away from all of everyone because it's easier for me to be how I feel like being at times, grumpy and and selfish and all that, if nobody else is around. Have you ever noticed that? It's so much easier to be selfish when no one else is around. It's so much easier. And yet God sent them out two by two. Why? I think there's some particular reasons. First of all, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I realize that most of us may not have opened our Bible to that book in a while, so I'll give you an extra moment to find it. Four, starting in verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and, un and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. I have to confess to you, I grew up a lot of years thinking that was a marriage thing. I don't know how many, in fact, I've probably told people that this is a marriage thing in um in the years of ministry, that you know, if you have God and then you have the two of you, you're a three-strand cord, and it'll be awesome and you won't be broken. And I think that there's a great principle in that and there's truth in that. But as I have had the privilege of being spending a lot of years in the church, in church ministry, and as I, as I feel like God has been opening my heart to what He intends the church to be, um, I am convinced that part of what we miss in our culture is this idea that we don't need this. That we don't, we don't really need one another. The, the, the church life that we have, the ability for us to be connected and to carry one another and to support one another and to get the work done that we have. Jesus obviously sees this with his disciples and he sends them out two by two to go out and do a ministry where they're going to experience great success, Right? No, they did. I mean, think about it. If you're out healing people and casting out demons, woohoo! 
pretty awesome stuff, and yet they were probably facing the same kind of conflict, the same kind of resistance that Jesus faced when they were around the Jewish leaders. We don't get a lot of detail. I don't know how many of you guys wish you had more details. It, for those of you that are readers, you're all like, oh man, that would have been awesome if the Bible would be bigger. For those of you that aren't readers, you're like, nah, I'm good with what we got. I understand that. But there are times where I'd love to have more detail. What was it like? What did they go through? What did they experience? Why was it so important that they were out two by two? Because it's specifically referenced in this. Jesus sends them out. The other side of this, and we're not going to even touch it, but you have to, who got stuck with Judas? Let that sink into your church analogy for just a little bit. He was there. He experienced and was part of that same process with the rest of the guys. It's an amazing picture of the church. These guys go out and, and they, they begin to fulfill and obey with uh, the, the directions of the Lord. So we see that they're going out two by two. I think it's, it's obviously it's important to understand the value of our connectedness, of our work together in the church. The second piece of this is uh, the question that I was asking myself as I'm wrestling with, whose authority did they go out with? How, how, did, how did it work that they went out and this power that was a, a given to them through Jesus actually accomplished this task? Um, I think Jesus gives us a reference to that in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus says this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Come to me, all who, are lab who, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I believe that what we see Jesus referencing here, and, he, and, and we know uh, that, that from this text that he has been given all authority from the Father, the access to the Father, the knowledge of these things, all of that comes from the Father through Jesus. And in this text, we see Jesus specifically identifying that he's given this authority to his apostles to accomplish the task that he's sending them out. They're not going out on their own ability. They're not going out on their own knowledge of God and, and even their belief system, right? We, we know from the text farther down the road that they really don't quite know what's happening here. They're seeing these things happen. They're watching miraculous things happen. They know that Jesus is doing great stuff. They know he's a prophet. They know they're supposed to be following, but they're a little bit disconnected from the truth of who he really is. And how all of this is working, I, I can just imagine um, if, if I were in that role and I was given that authority and I was given that power and given that, that I might have an issue with pride. Could you, could you imagine being one of the 12, getting to go out and heal like Jesus did and cast out demons like Jesus did? What a challenge that would be to maintain a, a, a humble spirit in this process. 
And I believe that part of that, uh, part of the reason that we see how they're sent out is to help with that, right? Um, because then as soon as he tells them to go out and he gives them the authority, he references how they should go. Specifically, he says, take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but wear sandals and no, don't put on two tunics. One of the commentators I was reading, he, he was saying that uh, the tunic is like, um, it's like the garment that's touching the skin. So it'd be like our underwear. Don't take a change of underwear. I don't know. I wasn't in the culture. I'm not sure if that's exactly how that worked. But specifically, he's saying, don't take an extra one. For some reason, they would have, on a journey, taken an extra one. And he says, don't do it. Don't do it. What kind of preparation is there for their journey? Um, it's interesting, and, and again, I, I don't know if, if there's a direct correlation to this. I, I, I didn't see it. But it's very interesting that in Exodus chapter 12, as they're getting ready for the Passover to be celebrated for the Jews as, as uh, uh, the angel of death is coming and they're preparing for this Passover, the uh, um, Jews at that time, the Israelites, were actually called to dress in a very similar fashion with a staff in their hand and their cloak on, their sandals on, ready to go. Interestingly enough, they're really not uh, prepared for that journey either, right? You, the Israelites had no idea what was coming, and God had to provide. It appears that part of what Jesus was intending for them to see was although they were unready, from a traveling standpoint, and, and maybe even from a knowledge or belief standpoint, that what they experienced in their journey was a, was a dependence on God to show up. And uniquely, I think it, he included a dependence on other believers that he interacted with. When they showed up into a town, they were to stay in that home that received them and accept that, that care and that, uh, that gift of provision and a place to, to rest. Clearly, as we consider our dependence on the Lord, John fifteen five um, says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I had to tell you, if I had the if I had been in their shoes and been able to do some of the stuff that they were doing, it would have been easy for me to think that I was something special. I don't know if you guys know this, but I used to dream about being an NBA basketball player. Um, clearly, I have the physical stature to make that pretty clear for most people. And so shortly after my visions of grandeur in NBA play was destroyed by the reality of life, I think it was like the age of 17 and five foot eight. I decided and uh, that music was my next place. And um, I, I remember the day that I thought, man, that's what I want to do for the Lord. Um, I was at a DC talk concert. Okay, I'm just letting that, I'm just checking to see an age demographic right here to see what happens with that reference. I was at a DC talk conference and they were doing all of their big flash and show glam and drums were spinning. I mean, it was a show, it was a party. And then they unplugged everything and they brought out a guitar and a drum, a, a little box and an acoustic bass 
And the whole band came forward and sat in this little tiny circle with nothing else going on. And 10,000 people sang almost a cappella to the Lord. And I thought, man, God, that's what I want to do for you. That's what I want to do. And so began my, uh, what I thought was a, a pursuit of being a music person. As you can tell, I'm very successful at that. And it was actually during the concert with Casting Crowns the other night that um, I think God just put a, a, a light in my heart that said, uh, you're not humble enough to serve me there. And that, that was one of the reasons that I didn't get to do that. Because to recognize that you're not worthy, you're not capable of those things, to be completely dependent on God and others is a difficult thing for me to do. And there was great joy in that moment as I sat and thought to myself, you know what, Lord, you're right. You are right. What a gracious father that didn't let me pursue something that would have wrecked me. Instead, he said, I want you to care for my church because you're so good at that. That is not true. Look at Ephesians. One of my favorite verses, Ephesians uh, 2, 8 through 10. And we all know this, but would you, would you do me the favor of opening your Bible and making sure that if you have it in your hands that you're looking at this? Because I would really encourage you to, to mark, if you're okay with marking in your Bible, do it. If not, put it on your phone app. You can mark it in there. But when we think about this idea of being dependent on God, for the things that he's asking us to do, even if we don't feel ready, even if we, we maybe we're like the disciples and, and we're excited about what we see happening and, and we're watching what God's doing and we're not understanding it, but we're passionate and excited and we're running forward into this, the, the danger for you and for me, I think, is that we begin to think that we're something that we're not. We begin to think that we are greater than what we really are. And I love what Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Part of what the disciples were discovering in their journey in this process of going out and taking nothing with them that they would typically take for a journey was that they could depend on God to provide even their physical needs. Not only were the spiritual things happening, not only were the, the miracles happening, but their physical needs were being met. Now again, I'd love to have more of the story because there are days in my life where God's waited to the last minute to meet a need. And I just can't imagine that they had every single day they were, you know, always having more than what they needed. I just, it seems like God would, would help them in that way. So we see at this point that the disciples are sent out two by two with God's authority. Being dependent, uh, not ready, but being dependent on God and others. 
And then we get to this part of the passage where he starts talking about shaking the dust off of their sandals. This idea that if they're not received, that they are to shake the dust off of their sandal to be a testimony. Uh, again, one of the one of the commentaries that I was reading, they they suggested that the Israelites had a practice in that time of actually shaking the dust off of their shoes when they would come out of a Gentile area to as a as a like a picture to 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 say we're not bringing any of the uncleanness with us. We're even we're even knocking the dust off of our sandals uh, so that we don't bring their that type of uncleanness. With us, I, I'm not sure if that's an actual thing, but clearly from Jesus' perspective, there's a testimony that's being stated here. When they walk out of that town and they dock, knock the dust off of their shoes, there's a testimony that's being stated as to them being turned away or the message that they have being rejected. Matthew chapter 11, uh, verse 20. It's interesting that how Jesus talks about the towns that they are testifying in and, and their rejection of Him, their rejection of the good news or the miracles that are being displayed. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 says this, Then He began to denounce the cities where most of His mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. There is an intensity and, and uh, a conviction that happens when the truth is told and when, when, when Jesus is presented to this culture. And he says that there is going to be a consequence for that. And in this process of his disciples going out, they have the privilege of sharing the truth of the gospel. And in that sharing, as they're leaving, those who've rejected it, they become the testimony against them. As we are his ambassadors, as we take the gospel light to the world, um, we're to shine the light on, on, on the, the lost. We're to shine the light into a lost world. And uh, I don't know how many of you guys feel like being the judge of the world. Um, I do. At times I get super frustrated with what I see going on. I'm like, nope. You are a gospel candidate, but not today. You cut me off on the freeway. Um, you know, I, I make fun of that. But the reality is, you guys, there are times where I see people and I want to be the judge. I, I want to be the one. I, I, there's probably times I've thought about if it wasn't so awkward, I would have taken my shoes off and beat them off and been like, ah, that's a Bible thing. But the reality is, is, is that the way we live, God has and uses as a testimony against the world. The way that we live and interact in this world, it is a testimony. 
know, John challenged us to consider the gospel being the way that we deal with a lot of our life issues when things aren't going well. You and I, the way we live is a reflection on who we say we believe, what, what we actually believe. And so when we think about what, it's, what it means for these disciples to live in obedience, to follow Jesus, even though, in my opinion, they probably weren't ready, how we would define ready, they didn't even understand everything that they were actually going out to share with the world. But in that moment, in that moment of obedience, as they went out and called people to repent, to return to the Lord, Jesus said that it would be used as a testimony against them. How do yours and my life reflect the testimony in the gospel of God? Would, the te- would it be a testimony against the world or is it a testimony against us and how we live? I, th- I think we should consider that as we think of how God might use us. I think one of the greatest challenges for me in the text is, um, I guess it depends on how you're wired. How many of you guys are mercy people? Don't raise your hands right now. I I apologize. Don't raise your hands. Think about it, just in your own minds. How many of you are mercy people, where you see something happen and all you can do is offer mercy? That's not everybody, just in case you guys are wondering. That's, there are some people that have mercy. There are other people that are much more, what should we say, have right and wrong values. And once they're wrong, they're wrong, and they should just be discarded. And there's not anything wrong with that. That's not a negative thing. It's part of how God wired us so that as we function together, we have truth and grace, and it's expressed very good, very well. Now, I'm a mercy person. So you know what that means? I tend to see hope for everybody. Everybody. Tend to. Not always. I have my days where I'm completely selfish and I just want Jesus to take care of them right now. But when it comes to watching God do certain things in his sovereignty, I struggle with it at times. And this is one of the areas that I struggle with a little bit. Jesus, why didn't you run after them? I mean, I get it, you're doing all this stuff, but, but how, can, how can his disciples go out and be the testimony against them? They're pathetic. They're not even good evangelists. I mean, think about it. You've got a bunch of clueless kids going out telling about God, telling people to repent, and they don't even understand who it is that they're going out for. It seems like he's really stacked the deck against these people that are not believing. I know it's not true. I'm just telling you, that's how I sometimes wrestle with some of these things. And so as I was thinking about that, the the text about the rich young ruler pops into my head. And just bear with me for a second as we look at this, because it's an important principle for us to understand about how the gospel works. In Luke chapter 18, verse 18, we read this. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. 
and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. It's interesting in the text, we see the rich young ruler and he's He's, he's sharing with Jesus. He wants to know, how do I get into the kingdom of God? And he, and he has in his mind that he's accomplished all of these things, all of the, the law that he's supposed to accomplish. And Jesus identifies in him the one thing, the one issue that he's still holding on to, and he, he addresses it, and the young man goes away brokenhearted. And I, I, in my heart, you, you see him, he doesn't pursue him after that, right? I mean, at that point, wouldn't you want to water down the gospel just a little bit? Well, don't sell all that you have. Uh, you know, maybe maybe we could do a percentage of that. Maybe if you just gave a percentage and followed one day a week. Maybe it was just like, you do Sundays, and then a percentage of your budget, and you'd be good. Now, I'm not saying that that's how, this is not about us all giving away all of our money. That's not the point. The point is, Jesus identified that, he, that this young man had something that he held above following God. He held higher than his worship of God, and Jesus addressed it. What's interesting is that in that perspective, in that moment, he refers to the people getting into the kingdom as being very, very difficult to do. And the disciples recognized it, and they said, Oh my goodness, Lord, then how does anybody get in? If it's that hard to get in, how is anybody going to get here? And it's at that moment that we see the famous text, what's impossible with man is possible with God, right? What Jesus is suggesting and demonstrating is that um, as they follow the Lord, as they obey, that God, the results are great, even in their inadequacies. We then see in John chapter 14, that Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. You guys, would you do me a favor right now? I'd like, just bow with me. We're going to pray. 